So I went to South America and ended up riding 15,000 Ks through the continental motorbike. So suddenly I was like, all right, this is game on. I'm going to learn to paraglide in Colombia. So then me and a mate of mine from Tassie trekked from Bolivia right up to Colombia. At the time, I'd only learned Spanish about three months earlier. My mate didn't speak Spanish at all. I basically was learning in a language I'd only just learned uh, from a guy we didn't know in a country that is slightly different. Flying a paraglider is an incredible thing. Being supported by nothing other than a few strings a millimeter thick and sitting in a seat that's basically a backpack made of nylon. At those times when the whole world just falls away and, and you can just see the curve of the earth and everything still, it's, um, it's amazing and crack! And my whole wing just imploded. I just remember at the time suddenly just seeing blue above me and that was it and I could feel my stomach just shoot through my mouth. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an explorer, speaker, and renewable energy developer who danced with death and is driven by a passion to improve our society and maintain our environment for today's generations and more importantly, for our children. He has a Bachelor of Engineering Honours in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Queensland and has lived the university of life as he steps outside the bounds of what people consider as living a normal life. A career in mechanical engineering has included roles at Arup, Parsons Brinkeroff, New Britain Palm Oil, Sigmund Limited, Winlab, Eon, WK Wind Current, and Acu Energy. I'm pleased to introduce to you a man who defies gravity, who has a curiosity that spans the horizon and is inspiring people to glide to soar. Shane Cornell, Shane, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Craig. I um. Yeah, I really appreciate the intro, mate. I'm not not quite sure. Uh, yeah, it was was uh, was was awesome, actually. I, I didn't expect it, so yeah, appreciate it, man. An awesome. I'm not, not quite sure I defy gravity, but um, yeah, we'll get into that, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're a man that's kind of got Tri Nations blood in you. You've you grew up in South Africa. You spent time in New Zealand, and you're living in Australia. So, how did it all begin? in South Africa, where did you grow up and what was your big dreams and aspirations as a kid? Yeah, um, yeah, it's funny actually. I mean, when people these days ask me where I'm from, uh, I kind of just tend to give them a blank stare because home for me is a really relative concept. So I grew up in a, in a small town um, in South Africa near Durban called Richards Bay. And um, what was it like? Uh, you know, I mean, it was a pretty small place and it kind of, if if people are in Australia, it's similar to far North Queensland. So we had crocodiles down the road in the local canal and my dad used to take us water skiing. And when you fell in, you'd be freaking out and make sure the boat came back because you weren't sure what was in the water with you. Um, so in terms of aspirations, um, 
I don't know. I just, you know, I've always just loved life and I've loved adventures and all of those sort of things. When I was about uh, eight or nine, we moved to New Zealand and I was there uh, till I was about 17. And then, as you say, I ended up in Australia and there's been a lot of places in between. Yeah, so you, you know, being in, in South Africa near Durban, obviously there's, you know, oceans, there's great white sharks and, and crocodiles you're talking about. You know, for you, was, was the water, was getting out and surfing, was that a big part of your, your, your early childhood before you moved to New Zealand? Yeah, it was definitely. Um, I mean, you know, like we grew up, we grew up outdoors to a large extent. I mean, my dad, um, my dad was always a pretty adventurous uh, sort of person. He did a lot of skydiving, not skydiving, sorry, um, scuba diving and hang gliding and stuff when he was younger. And I remember from the age of sort of three, he would push us on our bodyboards at the beach and uh, we would get tumble turned and wheeled milled in the washing machine. So, um, yeah, I mean, we were always outside and, and the beach was a big part of that for sure. And so moving to New Zealand at eight years old, you know, it's a big shift. It's a different part of the world. But however, there is, there is the connectivity aspect there of rugby. And so was, was, something, was rugby something that you got into when you come to New Zealand? Like, did you, did you connect with the All Blacks or was it, no, nah, I'm still supporting South Africa? <laughs> Mate, you know, you know what's funny is that I actually, I started supporting the All Blacks when I got to Australia because... Um, I found that the Australians were so pro Wallabies and pro Australian sports people that the best way to rub them up was to support the Kiwis. Um, but, you know, I suppose growing up, um, growing up, I was actually a, a cricketer more than a rugby player. I mean, I was a small, a small skinny white kid. And uh, that, that was just, that was the thing. And back in South Africa, I grew up um, sort of within the English community and, and cricket was more the sport. So rugby wasn't really my thing, but um you know, we, we loved the hucker. The hucker was like the thing and going to the place where Jonah Lomu came from was, was pretty epic. So other than, other than that, the day that my parents walked in and said to my brother and I, we're moving halfway around the world. We had no idea what New Zealand even was. Um, so yeah. And, and that opportunity at a young age too, you know, that builds, uh, your, your resilience to being adaptable, you know, you're changing to a new environment, a new culture, you get to understand, people's different a uh, different people's perspectives yes new zealand and and south africa are similar in some ways but very different in other ways and so you know for you was it a big adjustment to a new culture a new way of doing things you know being able to speak the lingo yeah it's it's a really interesting question a really good one i mean um one of the real one of the real beauties i suppose of growing up in south africa and one of the reasons why I still love the country so much to this day is there, there is this huge cultural diversity. I mean, when we grew up, uh, we were looked after as much by, um, by our sort of Zulu, um, uh, nanny as we were by my mother. And, um, so we, we were brought up within different cultures, but moving to New Zealand was an interesting one. I mean, we never really, and, and I speak saying we in terms of my brother and I, we didn't really see ourselves as being any different, but when things really changed for us and we realized that we weren't home anymore was when, um, in I think it was around about 2000 when um, New Zealand and South Africa played each other in the World Cup playoffs for third and fourth and South Africa ended up winning and my brother and I were still supporting them because we were very fresh off the boat into New Zealand. And uh, we actually ended up getting beaten up later that afternoon because of it. So, 
that was a bit of a run in and I, you know, I went through, I got bullied pretty badly for a bit, um, probably a year or two after I got there just because I was different. And that was a real eye opener to the world and to mm. the fact that there was this difference in culture and skin color. And to me that had never actually, that had never appeared before that a, that there was any difference or B there was a problem. Um, so I think it does, it does toughen you up. Uh, you, you definitely learn a bit more about the world. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it was an interesting experience moving at a young age and I've done it many times since then. So, uh, it's definitely something that I've had before. And you become, you know, you, you fell into or not fell into, you, you put yourself in positions where you're in leadership uh, opportunities from quite a young age as well. You know, deputy head boy at Rangitoto College and also you, a, a few other things. You know, when did you, when did you really grasp the fact that you had influence on other people? Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, so I suppose those kind of leadership roles started... Uh, right back when I was probably even 10, 11, 12. So I was, um, I was the captain of the, uh, the North Shore hockey team for a while in terms of our age group. And hockey was a really, really big part of my life. So throughout um, sort of my adolescent years, you know, eventually um, in the last years of high school, I was captain of the Rangitoto First Eleven. And um, back at uh, intermediate school when I was about 12, I was house captain. And then I got to to high school and ended up being uh, the student representative on the board of trustees for the school in um, in year 11 and then deputy head boy in year 12 along with other things. And so I think from quite a young age, uh, I was fortunate to have the character and the attributes that put me in the position where th th I just sort of leaned towards it. So I think, I think at that time um, it, it started dawning on me the impact you could have on a group and and the impact you could have on the ability for a group to be inspired or to achieve or or really just to to improve their situation or their performance um yeah so i think i think it came fairly early on where where it really changed was at my later end of high school and then when i went into university when i was then um sort of a representative for university of queensland and those sort of things but uh, it's sort of leadership roles um, have sort of been something that I've naturally sort of strived towards throughout throughout the years. And if you if you look back at your leadership when you were, say, as as a student at school and even into the University of Queensland, what do you think has changed the most from how you lead now? I think I think that there's two things. One is that um, one is that I'm much more conscious of, I'm much more conscious of being a leader and of the responsibility that that bears. So I think that at times, particularly when you're younger and you get into leadership positions, you know, there's still times where you act out and you cause a ruckus or et cetera. And these days, if you are in a position of responsibility, I think you realize that you have a responsibility to yourself and to the people around you to act in a way that is uh, complementary or, or um, improves the, the standing for the group as a whole. Um, more than that as well, I think when you're younger, um, or when I was younger at least, um, there is an element of things being about you. You know, it's, it's about achievement and it's about 
trying to um, become something because it's good for your ego as much as it is for everyone else. But these days, I think the older I get and the more I learn, the more I realize that it's not about you. It's about the people around you and how you can impact them. And, and today, a lot of the things I do, pretty much everything I do is focused at what is the value I'm giving to the people around me? And am I helping to create a better place than when I started? And, um, and it's really interesting because, you know, like I started doing quite a lot of, um, of speaking in, in recent years about, about things to try and help improve certain situations. So particularly to try and help inspire people and to try and help inspire sustainability. And, um, and every time I feel slightly down about speaking because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of this and that, and I go back to the base principle, which is, this is not about me. This is about the other people and what they take away. That's what re-energizes me. So I think if anything, the, the maturity of having grown up a bit and, and learning that it's not about you, it's about everyone else has been the biggest lesson about leadership for me. So that servant leadership style, you know, has, has come yeah. through. And I can really see that as well, which is fantastic. And you went into mechanical engineering. What was kind of your, your why, why, why did you want to be a mechanical engineer? What was that drive? Yeah, so um, it's an interesting one. I mean, so, you know, I suppose a lot of people question uh, whether, you know, from a young age, what you want to be and all of these sort of things. And I've, I've always been a... Um, I've always been the kind of person that's interested by everything and anything. And it's, it's a real blessing because it means that you are just completely curious about the world, but sometimes because you're so curious about everything, it's hard to choose what to do. Um, <clears throat> but one of my passions since very, very early on was the sky and was flying and was, uh, you know, just looking up at the air and seeing airplanes and just being like, that is incredible. So there's this story actually where we were in Richards Bay at one stage and my dad did quite a lot of traveling when I was a kid um, for his work. And uh, we had this little remote country airport. And at one stage we went to see my dad off at the airport and my mum turned around and I was just gone. Right. So then she suddenly starts freaking out. My dad's walking onto the airplane and she's thinking, you know, Shane's fascinated by airplanes. Maybe he's running onto the airplane where Shane and the whole airport goes into lockdown to look for me. And I've walked all the way outside, like a few hundred meters. And I'm standing at this fence, watching the airplanes come in and take off and just super excited. But I think um, those stories started partially because I found an old photograph of my dad when I was about five years old with a hang glider behind him. And um, so my dad was a hang glider pilot back in, sort of the bad old days in the seventies. And um, ever since I heard that story, I had this fixation about flying and eagles and birds and et cetera. So my decision to go study engineering came from uh, basically me sitting, watching a documentary about airplanes the one day uh, late in my high school years and deciding that what I wanted to do was be an aerospace engineer and go build airplanes. Um, and so I was sitting in New Zealand at the age of 16, 17 and decided that was what I was going to do. And it was a game on and I uh, started looking for universities, but there was no university where I could study aerospace in New Zealand. So I then started looking in Australia and eventually um, got accepted into three universities over this side. And uh, basically 
sort of did any many miny mo and decided that Melbourne was too cold, Sydney was too big, and Brisbane looked like it had good waves, so maybe I'd move to Brisbane. <laughs> and uh, it was it was as complex as that. <laughs> Brilliant. And you know, it seems like you were really born to fly. You know, your dad's into hang gliders and and the fascination around planes, and so you. You're one of these people that just loves to explore, loves to um, seek new opportunities, be, be curious and, and find out what's out there. So where did you really start getting into flying um, your, hang, your hang gliders and uh, paragliders? When did that come in? Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, so from, from as long as I could remember, I'd had this fixation that one day I would go and hang glide. And it was just something which I just knew. I just knew that one day it would happen. And so I got into high school and into university and I met a guy who's now one of my best mates um, called John Munro. And we were chatting in uni and turned out he was a big kite surfer and a whole bunch of other things. And he brought up the one day that he wanted to paraglide. And I sort of pricked up at this idea and I said to him, well, you know, what's paragliding? So he said, well, it's basically hang gliding, but with a collapsible chute. So suddenly the interest and the cogs in my head just started turning. And, you know, I'd always thought of hang gliding, but a hang glider gets packed up into a big sort of eight to 10 meter long bag that you have to stick on top of the car. And it's a bit of a mission. And at that time I was really into climbing and I was doing a bit of mountaineering and all these sort of things. And for everyone, myself included, walking up mountains is awesome. But when you turn around and you walk back down, it's not quite as exciting. So suddenly I had these grandiose dreams about the idea of maybe I can walk up mountains, take a paraglider with me and then just fly off them. And then the awesomeness never stops. Right. So uh, this mate of mine said to me, OK, well, he's going to go do a course on paragliding. But here in Australia, it was going to cost something like $5,000. And uh, at the time I was a broke student, so that wasn't going to happen. So um, I finished university and at the time uh, I had this big dream of um, going and exploring Africa and driving Cape to Cairo on a motorbike, which at the time didn't happen, but then later turned into another epic adventure, which, which ensued. But so almost go to job, woke up at midnight the one night, with sweat dripping down me going, I can't go and work right now. I need to go on an adventure. So I woke up in the morning and I walked into the kitchen and I said, mum, I've just finished my uni. Uh, I'm going to South America next week. And she just looked at me and she went, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> so I went to South America and ended up riding 15,000 Ks through the continent on a motorbike and stuff. And eventually ended up in Bolivia. And some guy said to me, oh, he'd learned to paraglide in Colombia. Now he was a Colombian, right? He spoke Spanish and et cetera. And I said to him, well, how much did it cost? And he said, oh, about a thousand, thousand dollars. So suddenly I was like, all right, this is game on. I'm going to learn to paraglide in Colombia. So then me and a mate of mine from Tassie trekked from Bolivia right up to Colombia and um, went to go find this instructor who was now going to teach us to paraglide. So the, uh, a lot of people don't, don't know this part of the story, but, so I, I actually learned to paraglide in Colombia. And um, at the time, I'd only learned Spanish about three months earlier. My mate didn't speak Spanish at all. Uh, and the course required us to learn a heavy degree of meteorology and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I basically was learning in a language I'd only just learned uh, from a guy we didn't know in a country <laughs> that is slightly different. And um, 
it was a trial by fire to say the least. Yeah. So, uh, had some interesting experiences. I mean, most people take about 50 flights before, um, before they go and fly by themselves. I ended up doing a solo hike and fly off a big mountain in Colombia, sort of accidentally by myself on about my eighth flight. And, um, fortunately I'm still here. <laughs> as, as they say, you you never know. Uh, if you don't leap, you'll never know whether you can fly. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes you just got to take those opportunities, right? It's a little bit of risk and reward, but uh, as you say, you know, why would I need to walk down when I can fly off the mountain? And uh... yeah, man, and it's you know it's intriguing. I mean, when you first fly a paraglider, basically what happens is the instructor teaches you beforehand, and then you kind of play around the ground for a bit, and then he says, "Okay, I'm going to strap a radio to you. I'm going to have a radio. You're going to leap off this cliff, and then I'm going to talk to you through the radio and tell you what to do." So you kind of look at them and you're like, this sounds like a stupid idea, but yeah, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and then um, when you leap off, he's now speaking Spanish. So now you're hearing these commands that go, mas frena, mas frena, accelerador. Hey, hey, izquierda, izquierda, derecha. So effectively left, right, sp speed up, slow down. And you're just going, I hope I know what this guy's talking about, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, so it's uh, it's definitely a leap of faith, yep. Now, just talking, you know, you're you're hiking through Bolivia and Colombia. Uh, what was that like? You know, are you in dense jungle? Are you coming across um, cocaine suppliers, mafia? What's gang? What's going on out there? Um, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, I've I've been really fortunate to have done a lot of traveling, and um, I think a lot of people in the world have this far more um, intense view of the world than what the world's actually like. So yes, that stuff happens. And, you know, you do bump into people that um, are doing that kind of stuff, but it's not, it's not every day or all day. I mean, we had some, we had some pretty wicked adventures. I, I hooked up with some Israeli guys who um, were just into all sorts of things. And we ended up uh, going into sort of the lower Amazon in uh, Bolivia and, um, we were with some local guides and we cut down a bunch of trees and we strung them together with some big tubes and we rafted down this river for about eight days, which was pretty wild. Um, I ended up, I ended up actually getting a bot fly in my head, which turned into a bit of a gnarly experience later. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we definitely had some interesting experiences. Um, yeah. That's cool. And, and obviously, you know, being up in the sky, you're free, everything's going well, but you know, you haven't got too much room for error when things don't go well. You had a situation where you went into a death spiral. Mm. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, um, so flying, flying a paraglider is an incredible thing. Um, I mean, I've had moments in life where, where I've been in invisible air currents spiraling skyward at 10 meters a second or the equivalent of 40 k's an hour going vertically upwards um being supported by nothing other than a few strings a millimeters thick and sitting in a seat that's basically a backpack made of nylon um and you know at those times when the whole world just falls away and and you can just see the curve of the earth and everything still it's um it's amazing and I've had moments where I've touched the clouds and, and yeah, so it's, it's incredible, but 
you are you are in a precarious position i mean um effectively to, to put it simply you're taking a collapsible wing so by that i mean a wing which has no rigidity whatsoever and you're intentionally putting it into turbulent air currents which go up and down and left and right and sideways and um so yeah i uh you know when you're flying a paraglider you have collapses from time to time and um one day i was flying uh it was just another day i was flying in a in a place called portable in south africa uh which is a pretty well-known um big world cross-country flight um in in south africa which means it's pretty rough and it's pretty turbulent but you can also fly hundreds of kilometers on a paraglider and um this one day about 25th of march uh 2015 so five years ago now you know i'd taken off and i was flying and i was up in there about 20 minutes and i was following a couple of other mates across this sort of ravine type thing on the mountain range and next thing you know crack and my whole wing just imploded and um suddenly i was falling out of the sky and uh I just remember at the time suddenly just seeing blue above me and that was it. And I could feel my stomach just shoot through my mouth. And um, I recovered the paraglider, basically stopping, stopping it from overshooting me. And if the paraglider would, did overshoot me, what probably would have happened is that I would have landed inside it and then it's game over, right? So I managed to save the initial collapse, but what happened was that um, basically the lines on the right hand side of my wing got tied into the lines on the left hand side of my wing so it created a knot in my glider and it sent me into as you say a death spiral so i i spiraled down um towards this mountain from about 200 250 meters high um, and i threw an emergency parachute which uh you know should have saved me but um at the last minute what actually happened was another gust of wind then hit me and it actually slung me 180 degrees straight back into the front face of this mountain. So, you know, what, what I, what I recall is just this intense acceleration and suddenly just looking up and seeing this house sized sandstone boulder coming at me at hundred Ks an hour. And, um, I lifted my legs instinctively because of the fact that I'd heard from paragliders in the past that it's better to break your legs than your back. And because you're in a sitting position, the likelihood of breaking your back is pretty high. And that was it. Um, so there was, there was one guy who saw it from his paraglider, a good friend of mine. And um, all he remembered seeing was effectively my body hit the mountain uh, do a some double somersault and then just plow into the mountain behind. And that was, that was that. Wow. And, and so you're, you're there stranded, you know, like, do you have any idea whether you were knocked out for a period of time or, um, you know, what happens next, right? You just slammed straight into a mountain type thing. Yeah. Yep. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. So funnily enough, um, you know, I, I basically, I, I don't know if I blacked out for long. I think I may have sort of forgotten a few seconds just in the, the craziness of the, the crash. But I effectively came back round lying on this mountain. And I remember that 
I was underneath the vegetation. There's kind of like head height vegetation on this kind of mountain. It's Fainbos, which is typical of the Cape Town bushland. And I'm stuck in between these two giant rocks and it's dark in there. And, you know, it was pretty intimidating and pain and fear just kind of flooded me. And suddenly you know, I realized I was in a really, really bad position. I mean, I'm, I, I kind of look around and all of this uh, sort of intense sensation just smashes me like a freight train all over again. And I kind of like, I'm looking my head around to try and figure out what's going on. And I can see that both my ankles are the size of sort of soccer balls. And I'm pretty sure they're, they're broken. Well, actually, you know, I knew they were broken. And um, the biggest thing I remember is just this really intense feeling of discomfort radiating from my back. So um, it was almost as though, it was almost as though my body knew it was broken and all it wanted to do was just put itself back together. Like it was just this feeling of something is badly, badly, badly wrong. And it, my back wasn't necessarily sore. It was just, it was like this feeling of discomfort. You just want to run away from, right? Like if, if it, it it's like the worst nightmare monster you've ever seen in your life and all you want to do is run away but you can't run away because you're stuck in it um so you know i've never broken my back before but given the sensation and given the way things had gone and given i'd done a few first aid courses i was pretty sure my back was in a pretty bad shape and um all of the first aid courses i've done just said don't move so everything in my and my psyche was screaming, don't move, while everything in my body was screaming, just move and get the hell out of here, you know? So it was this, it turned into this really interesting situation where it was this, this massive conflict internally with me trying to stop myself from moving and, and potentially actually snapping my spinal cord if it wasn't already snapped. Um, and that lasted for a good hour, uh, so by the end of the by end by the end of um, the time where eventually you know an hour or two hours later someone arrived, um, I'd gotten to a point where I was I was biting my hands, I was pinching my face, and eventually when that wasn't enough, I was sort of banging my head on the rocks next to me just to try and stop myself from moving and and uh, potentially injuring myself more. Yeah, so in a, in a pretty serious you know situation, and obviously someone comes to to find you you know, what, you know, how long was it before you were able to get to hospital and, and how did the recovery go from there? It's actually, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, the first person to find me was um, a farmer, actually. There's one road up this mountain for about 40 kilometers. And uh, fortunately, I managed to crash about 350 meters from this road. So there was a guy who... Um, other than the guy who saw me from his paraglider, this guy happened to be standing on the road taking photos of me at the time I plummeted out the sky. And um, I just heard this crashing and this guy came running through the bush and he was screaming and I started screaming and suddenly this guy rocks up and I've never seen someone so white in their life. I mean, this dude literally looked like all his blood had just drained from everywhere and he was just skin and, um, and it turned out later, the reason was that he was expecting to find a, a dead body, basically. Like he, he as well, had just said there was no ways that someone could have survived that impact. So he was completely freaking out. And 
here I am lying on the mountain with what turned out to be two very badly broken legs and a broken back. And I sort of said to this guy, I was like, mate, chill out, you know? So here I am the <laughs> completely broken and I'm the one telling the other guy to, to relax. And I said to him, mate, just relax, please. Like if you don't calm down, I can't get rescued. So please just take a deep breath. Once you've taken your deep breath, please go back to the road, go call a helicopter and then um, please go and stand on the road. And my friends will come eventually. So when they come, just show me where, show them where I am because I can't move. So he did that. And, you know, being South Africa, he phoned the rescue helicopter and the helicopter said, oh, well, you know, that's really nice, but apologies, we're busy. So um, we can't come pick you up. So they sent, it, sent an ambulance and these guys rocked up and they pumped me full of morphine and put me on a backboard. And uh, fortunately, because I was close enough to the road, they managed to, with quite a lot of difficulty, hike me out. Um, and then... You know, I went to the first hospital, which was this sort of remote country hospital where it, it was almost as though the nurses were Vikings. Like they would just pick my leg up and it felt like my leg was being rebroken as they moved it. And then there was a four hour ambulance ride back to Cape Town over super dodgy roads, which again felt like every time you went over bumps, my legs were breaking. Uh, and then, you know, that was it. But um, we did the x-rays and stuff and the doctors sort of said to me, uh, you know, you've, you've broken, you've, you've effectively crushed both your ankles. Um, and there's just pieces of them everywhere and you've broken your vertebrae. We don't know yet whether, we don't know yet whether there's spinal damage and we don't know yet whether you'll be able to walk. Um, oh. so I don't think at that time I, I understood the level of, uh, probably emotion going through me, but about three days later after emergency back surgery, um, I came into this really dark room and I remember entering ICU and the anaesthetist was standing there and the anaesthetist sort of looked down and it was like two in the morning or three in the morning. And you know, you know what ICU is like, if you've been there, it's, it's like Dante's hell. Like there's just red beeping. There's people groaning that are dying. And this guy sort of looked over and he just said to me, you know, your spinal cords are right. You're going to walk again. And um, at that time, that was the first time that I just, just collapsed, you know, like I'd kept a really rosy attitude up till that point. And that was, that was when I just went snap. And I think that there was all this stuff that had built up. So uh, from there, recovery was long. I mean, I, I was in hospital for probably two months. I was in a wheelchair for probably three months. Um, I then had to relearn how to walk. Uh, eventually after probably, you know, maybe eight months, I, I was kind of more or less walking again. Um, but it was, yeah, it was definitely a pretty intensive process. Yeah. Very intensive. And, you know, and, and please listeners don't take this the wrong way. You know, sometimes you've got to look death in the face before you really start to live. And, and so what was your response from that you know, being in that, those emotions that are coming through from not knowing whether you're going to walk again or, you know, I presume at some point you're like, how the hell am I going to live through this to how did you then move from there into the next part of your life? You know, what was your reaction to, you know, hey, well, that was a pretty damn close call. What am I doing next? Yeah. So, you know, funnily enough, those, those thoughts started probably, 10 minutes, not even after I hit the mountain. And um, in effect, in effect, I've almost had the 
a simulation of what it would be like to lie on your deathbed because there were a few moments there where I wasn't quite sure whether I was going to come out the other end or whether I was going to, you know, whether that would have been it. Um, and the biggest thoughts going through my head at the time were, was the way I lived the way that I wanted to live? And did I impact people positively? You know, what, what am I leaving behind if this is it? And I thought a lot about the people I loved. I thought a lot about my girlfriend, for example, and about the fact that, you know, um, had I had I said goodbye to her that day when I left, had I kissed her and told her I loved her? Because if I hadn't have done those things, how would I know that she knew, right? Um, and, and as much as that, it was this question of, am I fulfilled? Um, so it started there and... Um, you know, then I, I went into hospital and I think for probably the first two weeks, uh, you know, I was aware of what was going on, but you're so full of drugs and morphine and uh, stuff that you're kind of just in this alien environment and you're just surviving, right? And where things became really interesting was after about two weeks when my consciousness kind of came back to a greater extent, I was sort of sitting in my own head. I mean, I, I couldn't, I could not move, right. I, I couldn't roll over if I wanted to, I couldn't, if, if the bell in the hospital was two centimeters out of reach, I would just sit there and look at it and wait till someone came because I couldn't move to get that bell. And um, so you're in your head and, and, you know, eventually I started thinking about what had happened and trying to, trying to, uh, sort of justify what had happened. And people were coming in and saying, you know, would you paraglide again and this sort of stuff. And I started going down a bit of a black hole, I think, um, you know, like you start having these big fears of, will I walk again? And at that time I knew I would, but when will I walk again? Will I be able to run? Will I be able to do all the things that I love, like hiking and climbing and all of these sort of things. And eventually you end up with that crux question, which is why me? And at this time, I started going down this pretty black hole. Um, and suddenly, you know, it dawned on me, I, I looked out the window and, and at the point of breaking almost psychologically, I just remember mentally just kind of yelling at myself and just saying, stop, you know, this is enough. And I suddenly realized back to the time when I was lying on the mountain that all I, all I wanted at that time was a second chance to go back and to make amends with anyone that I'd potentially harmed in life to leave the world in a better place than when I, that, that I, than I did when I found it and to, uh, to have a positive impact on the people around me and all this sort of stuff. Um, and ultimately to find fulfillment. And, um, so that was where, and, and I realized I had a choice. I had a choice in that moment to become depressed, to get angry, to say, why me? Or to say, to say, why me in the other way? To say, why did I get the chance to live? Why am I still here? Why, you know, actually, this is awesome. I've got time for the first time in years. And I've got all the people I love around me. I'm, I'm in this hospital where people are looking after me. Um, and I've got another shot. And um, so from there the problem kind of faded because it was all about what is the solution? What can I do with this, this time I now have, how do I show gratitude for the fact that I've got a second chance? Um, and my wife and I, 
started talking about what we wanted out of life and you know we were all we were always both really intrigued by life and and really grateful for it but it became a point of view of are we living the life we want to live and ultimately you know we'd we'd talked for a long time going back to the idea of this adventure through africa about the potential of doing an overland trip through africa together but it never happened because of time and money and the same old things so we then just decided that was what we were going to do and um and that was it you know i was still in hospital bed i was still in a wheelchair but we just decided we were going to go through africa and go climb mountains and and somehow that would happen uh, uh, so that was sort of the start of, of the recovery and, and i just want to just take a, a little moment here you know for anyone that does find themselves in a black hole you know you have a choice and please take that opportunity to reach out and get some help if you need it because we all go through rough times but there's always the next chance and we have a choice to decide what that next chance is going to be so you're going on this big adventure and and you know for me it's you get my blood racing my heart rate goes up because this is what i love like i love going out and getting lost and exploring and finding your way back and uh so for me yeah, i've seen i've seen the photos of you with your uh, your, your road bike in the sugarcane fields <laughs> for some arbitrary reason uh yep and there's it's a matter of being curious and you just never know what you'll find yeah for you you know you, you had that opportunity to i suppose not so much make amends but it was just to go you know what getting through that that big trip through africa afterwards was that kind of a seal of approval with you know what hey i can do this that was just a small moment in life and things happen for a reason and now i'm getting to live the real life i want to yeah um it's a good question i mean just i suppose for your listeners what what effectively happened following that decision that we made was my wife and I ultimately organized um, an expedition, which we called Suzuki Africa Sky High. And um, so we we got sponsorship from about 10 major um, corporate companies. And we ended up traveling about 25,000 kilometers through the continent of Africa in a Suzuki Jimny, which is, is basically the smallest four by four in the world. Um, and in the process, we, we climbed the continent's five highest mountains. So, uh, a lot of people know Kilimanjaro, but the other four mountains are Mount Kenya, which is in Kenya and is actually only climbable via a two-day technical rock climb. So we ended up sleeping at about 5,000 meters in bivouac sacks. And the other three mountains, two of them have elements of, of uh, mountaineering with ice axes and, and crampons and these sort of things. So it was a really wild adventure. But the point of the adventure actually was was only partly the adventure itself so what we were trying to do was a couple of things the first one was that people have this perception of africa as being this dark scary continent and to us africa was home you know the people that we met in the streets were just these incredible people who may have had nothing materially but would offer you tea and would just offer you a smile and all these other things and then we had elements of um, environmental awareness. So trying to show the impacts that climate change and all these other things we're having on, on Africa and the people. And finally, the idea of minimalism. So the fact that you can live in a Suzuki Jimny for nine months and you don't need a giant land cruiser or anything else. Um, but to come back to your point, 
um, I think in part it was it was a dream, right? And and part of what we were trying to show was that living your dreams is a reality. And part of fulfillment, I believe, is following your dreams. It's not just dreaming them, but it's actually going out and saying, "I can do this." So for us, what we were searching for to a large extent was fulfillment and to to sort of satisfy that curiosity of what's over the rainbow and what's in our continent, our homeland called Africa. What what is it? And the really the really ironic thing, I suppose, was that we went and we did this whole trip. And uh, ultimately, when we got back to South Africa, um, I remember looking around and there's this quote that I've always thought about. And uh, the quote goes, we shall not cease from exploration, but the end of all of our exploring shall be when we arrive at the place we first started and we know it for the first time. And I'd never got it, right? Like I'd, I'd always read this and I, I like poetry and I, I thought it was a cool quote, but <clears throat> it meant nothing to me. And suddenly when I got back to South Africa and I was seeing the same landscape, but it looked different, I kind of realized what the whole trip was for. And what that was was that we were seeking fulfillment through externalities and we were seeking fulfillment through achievement but ultimately that fulfillment that i was seeking and and that i was referring to while i was on my deathbed and and with other people is actually not something you can find from the outside it's something you need to find within yourself um so your question what was the trip for i think in a roundabout way it was to find out who we were and to uh to explore ourselves as much as to explore the external world and it is definitely a great opportunity to find out whether you're with the right one as well i mean nine months in a very small space um, experiencing something new every single day you know that that's either going to break someone or make someone and, and to bring you two together obviously just really cemented your your connection and, and relationship yeah, absolutely. I mean, funnily enough, um, I actually proposed to Taryn um, only a month or two after I got out of hospital. So um, when I when I had the accident, you know, she used to come into the hospital once or twice a day for hours at a time every day that I was in hospital. And at the time, you know, I, I just realized that if if she was going to stand with me through this, that clearly she was the right person. And it actually turned into a funny story where I ended up proposing while I was still in a wheelchair with giant external fixators on both legs. And I managed to get out of my wheelchair and I tried to kneel, but because I couldn't put weight on either foot and I had no balance because I had no muscle, I ended up opening the ring case and falling over mid proposal. So uh, she ended up having to first drag me off the ground before I could then propose. So, um, so by the time we went on the trip, we were actually married. Uh, but I, I did feel a little bit at the time like I was giving her a bit of a half-assed marriage proposal, given that I was still pretty broken. And face planning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so from this, you you know, obviously we, we talked about there's a lot of leadership lessons along the way here. And and you know, when you when you get knocked down, you get back up on your feet. You your ability to observe and, and make decisions quickly, you know, being decisive, um, that opportunity to to also you know, understand that life isn't always not going to be smooth and it's that ability to, you know, to, to ride the, the current, so to speak, you know, let, go with the flow. And, but then been able to, you know, see the destination and figure out how you're going to get there. 
you've developed Glide to Soar as a way yeah. to to help people in life to find you know their their way and move through life. Tell us about Glide to Soar. So Glide to Soar, Glide to Soar was born from the fact that I realized that this story of being broken on a mountain to standing on the top of Africa's five highest mountains was a story that could inspire other people. And um, as I've said to you, one, one of one of my biggest drivers is just trying to get out and just trying to show people that there's this exciting world outside their front door um, and trying to find ways to inspire people through the stories and the experiences I've lived, which I've been really fortunate to have had. So the concept of Glide to Soar is that when I was paragliding, there was times where I literally was touching the clouds. And that time where you're touching the clouds is it's a sensation like I've never felt before where you feel completely at peace and completely fulfilled. It's almost as though your body is, or you are completely free and yet you belong completely. It's this really wild sensation. So one of the questions I started asking was how can we achieve that in everyday life? There must be a way to achieve fulfillment or contentment while we're going through life's adversity. Um, and so Glide to Soar was born from that. It was, it was a concept that I try to come up with or that I came up with over about five years to try and help other people get through their own struggles and ultimately to find fulfillment. So you're absolutely correct. Correct. I mean, the first, the first step in, um, glide to soar which comes from my experience of recovering from this paragliding accident is that adversity happens it just it just is it's a part of life and you know i was flying in a straight line the day that i fell out the sky i was doing nothing crazy yes okay i was paragliding and some people may say well you know it was going to happen but another four people had gone through the exact same space of air just before i had and they were fine but it was just it was just the way it happened right and i mean we could walk out today and get smacked over by a car but when you accept that adversity happens and when you when you find a way just to understand that that is part of life you stop resisting it and you stop fighting it and you just get over it and ultimately if you focus on solutions the problem is is no longer that big a deal because you're not focusing on it you're focusing on getting it through getting through it uh, and then the other, one of the other points which you just mentioned is a concept uh, that I call success is subjective. And the idea is that the idea is that success and fulfillment, society tells us that success and fulfillment are having wealth and power and thousands of social media friends, right? I mean, we have this, we have this very strict sense of what success means particularly in the first the first world and in the western sort of um society and in my experience having having lying on my deathbed for over an hour and having had all of these epiphanies associated with it that wasn't what success meant to me success meant rekindling the relationships that i may have broken along the way and telling the people i love that i love them and and doing the things that meant something to me and ultimately leaving the world as a better place so what I realized was that if success is subjective, we need to know what success means to us. So you need to figure out for yourself, what does success mean? Like, 
what are your values, the things that are important to you? What are the things that get your blood boiling? And how do you focus on those to, to create more of them? And therefore, how do you, how do you define success? And, and before, before you know what that is, you're never going to be successful because you don't actually know what you're striving for. Um, so those are two of the lessons within Glide to Soar. There's a framework of, of about five total, but ultimately Glide to Soar is about trying to help people align with things that are fundamental to success, but that are not, not often realized. Um, and again, it comes down to, to personally understanding what it is to feel fulfillment and what it is to, to actually find your own version of success rather than someone else's. Yeah. How do you know where you're going if you don't know where the destination is? And so that, that's so important in finding that fulfillment. How do people, you know, a lot of people in life struggle to identify what success might be. How can they go about, you know, what, what sort of process they can go through to help them identify what success might look like in their, in their life? So I think um, there's two things here. The real question is, and it comes back to this idea of, of success being subjective. Where do you want to get to? What do you want to do? You know, what, what, is, what is the end point you're looking for? Because if you don't start with the end in mind, you end up just kind of moving through the world and the, the world affects you rather than the other way around. So we all, we all have things that make us tick. There inherently are always things in life which we're passionate about. And to some people, it's, you know, going and climbing mountains and flying off them. And to some people, that's the worst idea of chaos that you could ever imagine. And actually watching crazy cat videos on Facebook is what gets you going. But my point is that everyone has a passion and everyone has things that when they do it, they feel alive and they feel associated with it and it can be you know as simple as as spending time with family but identify what those things are to you and identify what the things are that you value so is it is it freedom is it adventure or maybe is it um making a difference or those kind of things and if you know what your values are and what what drives you and what makes you feel alive you can then start building this picture but the easiest way, the easiest way that I've found to do it is to to try and determine what those values and those baseline principles are, and try and determine what your ideal life or your ideal um, your ideal situation could be, and then try and figure out how you can get there. Yeah, I like that. You know, what comes alive? It's generally if someone asks you a question on it, what is the one thing that you can't shut up about? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's one of my favorite quotes is, um, is do not what the world needs, but what makes you come alive, because what the world really needs is more alive people. Yes. And it's so true. You know, if we were all passionate about what we were doing, imagine, imagine the world that we could live in. Um, but coming back to, I suppose, a point I raised earlier, ultimately with, with a lot of this stuff, um, at risk of sounding slightly philosophical, It's in my experience, it's not externalities which bring happiness and it's not externalities which bring fulfillment and it's not 
external achievement which bring a sense of contentment it's you and it's how you feel and and we all have that sense of contentment within us and we all have the ability to be content and to be fulfilled i personally don't believe you can find fulfillment the deep sense of fulfillment through external achievement i believe that in order to find it it's something that you need to to find internally and and the biggest principles there are are actually very simple and it's things like gratitude just simply being gra grateful for the world that you have and for the life you're leading and acceptance just accepting that adversity does happen and that you know life is difficult sometimes but that's just life um so one of the biggest things i've learned is that we're all striving for things but often we forget about the now and about how we feel in the now and that fulfillment is not tomorrow it's today so don't don't constantly strive for things out of your reach be content with where you are and be content while you're looking for these things and i could uh, sit around a campfire or with a glass of wine or two and 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 really enjoy you know listening to your 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 ideas and your philosophy and your thoughts around glide to soar uh, and and i could do it for a few more hours so we all know smart people have great answers but the most successful people ask great questions when was the last time you did something for the first time it's an interesting question the last time i did something for the first time i did a virtual keynote about a month and a half ago actually and since then so that was in uh, in india and since then, I've done about seven throughout uh, Singapore and various states in Australia. But let's go with that. And for those who haven't seen it yet, it's a pretty epic uh, keynote as well. And it is a real experience that you don't get very often online. So, you know, check out Shane Cornell's uh, social media and you will find uh, some footage of that, which uh, is, is pretty amazing. What is the one question? that you would love to solve? I think how do we get people together to collectively build a better world? That's my question. Powerful. Powerful. I like that. How do you... Uh, sorry, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? I think that my, my definition of living an extraordinary life is to, first of all, positively impact those around me so that, so that I'm improving their life and their conditions. And secondly, you know, as I've brought up a couple of times, it's to leave the world or, or my situation or my environment in a better place than when I started. And finally, it is to, to find fulfillment within myself, both through external achievement, but also, and more importantly, through internal um, sort of investigation. So it's a balance between, between those two things. Brilliant. 
So many great gems and uh, you know take homes today. Really, really appreciate your what you're sharing. So, how can people learn more about what you do, and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Um, yeah, thanks, and thanks so much for having me on the show today, Craig. So, um, if people are interested, the best way to get a hold of me, I've got a website which is shanequinnell.com. So, I'm sure Craig will probably have that written down somewhere. Um, so you can check out some stuff on that and there's some videos of, of my speaking and other things, uh, but more, I, I suppose more directly, um, I have a Facebook presence, um, again at the handle at Shane Quinnell, uh, and then I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Just, just look me up. Um, but I'm always super keen to connect with people and just hear and see what other people are up to. So don't be shy, reach out. And, um, if you'd like. Uh, one of the things I'm in the process of doing is actually offering um, 10 minute virtual keynotes to companies to help bring people back from COVID and help inspire. So let me know if you're interested. And I would encourage you to do that. And also if you go to his social media and check out some of his videos, you actually get to see some of the footage from when he goes into the death spiral and uh, yeah, quite impressive um, footage that he has there from the GoPro uh, on the chest. So. You know, might want to check those out. And there's nothing gory. Don't worry. You, 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 don't, you don't get to see him yelling and, and screaming in pain, but you do get to see, get an image of what it was like for him um, at certain aspects of that free fall. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Shane. Really enjoyed just your view on the world and you know, how you adapted moving from uh, moving different countries when you are quite young, how you overcome adversity of you know, getting beaten up as a kid and when, when you stood out as being someone a little bit different, but you were able to overcome that and then go into a leadership role and, and show people that there, there is a better way to approach things in life. Your zest for life and just your love of exploring and adventuring has opened up so many new worlds for you and I just... I love seeing you, the journey that you're on and the keynotes that you're delivering and the messages that you're sharing around the world. They are so important and so impactful. So I really appreciate that and acknowledge you for the work that you do. And thank you so much for being on the Active CEO podcast today. Yeah, well, thanks, Craig. I mean, it's it's always an absolute pleasure to chat to you, mate. And um, all those things are right back at you. I mean, first of all, you know, it's awesome just to see what you're doing with the active CEO and empowering people. So thanks for having me on board. And I hope that, uh, that it's uh, useful for your listeners. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to an epic conversation with Shane Quinnell leaders glide to soar on the active CEO podcast. What is the one intention where you will focus your attention. It's very easy to get caught up with so many tasks, so many ideas, so many problems to solve, when in fact, all we need at any one moment in time, any one day, is one intention. Because you need to ensure that all your attention is focused on delivering something really, really well. It's a great idea to use this at the beginning of each day. What is my one intention today? Because then you can say no to the other things or you park them because your one intention needs to be your, 
your key priority for that day. Now, if you're looking for what you're doing for the future, if you wanna be really successful, then you also need to look at what is the one intention where you will focus your attention long-term as well. Because once you have that clarity of what you are focusing on, then it's really easy to say no to the things that don't relate. Otherwise, all you're doing all the time is saying yes. So each day when you wake up, what is that one intention where you will focus your attention? If you need any help in providing some clarity around what you can focus your attention on, then please contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.